Hi, this is Bob Groves. Welcome to another episode of the podcast Faculty in Research. This week, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Rebecca Hamilton, a professor of marketing and marketing area coordinator at Georgetown's McDonough School of Business. She also serves as the Michael G. and Robin Pissarro's Chair in Business Administration here at the university. She examines the effects of contextual factors, such as the social environment, the stage of decision-making, and presentation format on the way that consumers make decisions. Her work has won numerous awards, been published in notable scholarly outlets, such as the Journal of Consumer Research, Journal of Marketing, Harvard Business Review. She's currently co-editor of the Journal of Marketing Research, associate editor for the Journal of the Academy of Marketing Science, and she serves on the editorial boards for multiple other academic journals. I'm delighted to welcome you here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I know you have a variety of research interests, but I'm interested in what you're working on now, what, uh, how you got into these interests. Mm-hmm. So one of the themes that I find in my research is that consumers have trouble predicting their preferences. So we think as marketers, we can ask consumers, well, what would you like in a new car? What would you like in a product? And they can tell us, we could design the product accordingly, and sales will follow. But in fact, consumers often have trouble figuring out what's going to make them most satisfied. So, for example, we've done work looking at uh, how consumers choose features for products. And almost invariably, consumers list a lot of features that they want in a product while they're shopping because they might come in handy someday. When they get the product home, they often find that they're overwhelmed by the number of features. We call this feature fatigue. The pattern happens, we find, because consumers think more abstractly about the desirability of the product before they start using it. Using the product actually puts them into much more of a concrete mindset, and they think much more about usability as opposed to desirability, so there's actually a shift in their preferences. So that that usability side requires something to actually present to a potential consumer, right? You you need to simulate. Absolutely. So, you know, we can think about various tools we can use to help consumers predict their preferences. So we might give them a prototype. We might ask them to think about how they'll feel when they're actually using a product. We can um, try to put them into more of a concrete mindset when they're making uh, predictions about what they'll want in the future. So as marketers, we have to figure out the right questions to ask and the right context to help consumers see themselves in that uh, different state of mind, in that different context, so that they can better predict what uh, kinds of products will make them uh, more satisfied. This is fascinating. So when did these kind of questions arise? Do you, what, what's your memory regarding <laughs> the moment where this became interesting to you? We um, actually can trace it back very specifically to a conversation. One of my colleagues had gotten back from a conference, and he came back with uh, some uh, mouse pad that he had gotten at the conference as a freebie. And he was intrigued by this mouse pad because it not only did what a regular mouse pad does, but it also had a clock, a radio, and various other features, and an instruction manual. So he came by my office and said, Rebecca, why are these product designers creating products with all these features? They are really getting it wrong, right? Why aren't they getting you know, a sense of what consumers really want? This is just gonna frustrate consumers. 
And the way the conversation progressed was that we figured out consumers may actually want a lot of features when they are shopping and when they're looking at various products. It's when they start to use them that that frustration occurs. So as the product project unfolded, we ran a series of experiments where we had people make predictions about the kinds of products they wanted. They chose lots and lots of features. We had one case where they could simply check off all the features they wanted. They chose 21 features for a digital video player. Uh, and then we ran other studies where they actually used products with seven features, 14 features, 21 features that were otherwise very similar. And we found that those products with fewer features led to greater satisfaction in use, whereas those products with lots of features were more attractive in prospect. So this was the disjoint uh, between prospect and actual use of the product. So how do you go, how do you actually go about your work? What method do you use and what have you learned over time in, in those methods? So that's one of the real keys here. The method you use is going to produce different results because some methods like a survey, we can ask consumers you know, what kind of product would you like and they can make a prediction but it's not until they start using it that they might feel differently about it. So we have to use methods like experiments to actually put them in a situation where they're using a product with 14 features, using a product with seven features or 21 features, and they may not be able to predict their satisfaction, but they'll be able to use a product and you can, you can find different uh, click streams, you can find different levels of satisfaction post-use and uh, so we, we do find that we have to match the method to the question we're asking, and, mm. and we're going to get very different results. And do you find on some of this research that there's big between-person variation? Are there some uh, consumers who desire rightly and really do use more complexity than others? Surprisingly, not as much as we expected. So we... Um, uh, ran some of our early studies with college students who we'd imagine would be very comfortable with technology. We also ran studies with older um, uh, people and found pretty similar patterns. There are certainly some people who are more self-aware in terms of avoiding products that have a lot of features and uh, others who are more susceptible to this effect. But overall, we find it, it's pretty typical of, of consumers that they have this abstract focus before they use a product and more concrete focus afterwards. So give me a sense of your, uh, of your life as a faculty member. You do teaching, uh, the research we've gone into a bit. You probably have a variety of other activities in consulting and service to, the, to your profession. How do you juggle these things? I'm very lucky to be able to teach a course on consumer behavior. So that allows me to really integrate my research with my teaching. And I teach at the undergraduate level, the MBA level, even executives, and find that people are very interested in uh, some of these patterns we find and the research methods that we use to uncover consumer preferences both before and after using products um, or um, some of the differences we find when people are alone versus with a group of people. And those too are, are hard to predict for consumers uh, until they're actually in the situation. But um, So I'm lucky to be able to share those insights with my students. Um, one of my favorite things to do is talk about the setup of a study and ask people to guess what the results are and you know it's it's um, 
often surprising to students um, what results we do find in experiments, and that's why you have to run an experiment, right? Mm -hmm. That's the, the joy of our profession in experimental research, that you don't always know what you're going to find because people are complex. Give us a sense of how, when you're doing uh, executive education, uh, the behavior of, of the students, as it were, are, are different from those at the undergraduate level. What, what are the mm -hmm. big, how do, you, how do you have to alter what you do as an instructor? So it um, is wonderful to teach at various levels because you learn different things from your students and interact with them differently. So with the executives, they're bringing a lot of of their own experience and they have deep experience with companies, they have deep experience in their own lives as consumers, so they're able to share a lot of that in in um, their class dis classroom discussions, whereas the undergraduates are very open to theory and of course have a lot of their experiences to share, but they're not able to contextualize those within the organization as much as executives who've lived and breathed in these organizations for uh, sometimes 10 years by the time they approach mm -hmm. class. And, and when you're teaching, you, you mentioned that you're fortunate and that you're actually teaching your research in, in some sense. Do you find that those are symbiotic kinds of duties that you perform? That you're, do you pick up research ideas from classes that in unexpected ways? Yes. So not only do I pick these up in life, just having conversations with colleagues, conversations with family and friends, but also in class. A student will ask a great question about why this happened, and that might be something that introduces a new study uh, or a new way of looking at a topic that I, I you know, thought I'd researched, <laughs> and, and there's still more to be done. So it's, it's, it's fun that way. I also have the um, uh, role of journal editor uh, for an academic journal, and so I uh, receive probably about 200 papers a year to handle, and those papers come in on a variety of topics related to consumer behavior, and those are uh, great for thinking about uh, the different areas of the field and where research is going. So some of our listeners might be interested in, in just that process. So as a as a journal editor, you you are part of the process that determines what what findings get disseminated. Mm -hmm. It's a huge responsibility in a, in a field, and give us a little insight about how that works. If if I'm a a freshly minted uh, uh, scholar, and I'm interested in that process, how does it work? So one important guideline I try to share with would-be authors for the journal is that you're speaking to an audience. When you submit your paper, you uh, should think about the way readers are going to approach it. Your abstract is an opportunity to introduce you know, why your work is important and what readers should expect to learn in your paper, even your title. And of course I'm in marketing, so this seems um, very, very uh, um, consistent with my teaching and my research, but you're marketing your work with a title in terms of um, coming to the reader's attention immediately. So when I, as an editor, pick up a paper uh, from my inbox, uh, I read the title, I read the abstract, and then I have some expectations about what I'll learn. That same process is going to be replicated by the reviewers, and so you as an author really shape the way people process that information. It's not about the research quality alone, it's also about the way you've positioned it for the audience and the way you're telling the um, insights of your paper. 
So I think that's an important lesson to um, remember when you're submitting. And then you as editor are <coughs> identifying uh, reviewers for mm -hmm. individual pieces, or you, you may have associate editors who do that. Uh, but tell us, give us insight into that. How do you go about choosing a reviewer? I, I love that process because I feel like I am developing my network continuously because you really have to know what other people know. You meet people at a conference and you see them present their work. You know they have expertise in a particular area and the next time you receive a paper in that area, they come to mind. So um, submitting your work to a journal is great not only because you might get your paper published but also because you can become involved in that journal's review process and uh, become one of the experts who's called upon in that area. So it's, it's really about building your network in a variety of ways and the fun part of reviewing for journals is that you're providing your insights um, to the authors, you're also providing your insights to the editors so they know that you have a particular type of expertise and they will call upon you again. I assume it's also in a sense a real privilege because you see the field as it's developing as well uh, yes. and you get a sense of what the key question, what the field is grappling with in yes. some sense. So, so I'm now in the third year of my co-editorship, and my co-editors, we have three of us, uh, who handle various domains of marketing. So one of us is more analytical and empirical, one of us is more strategy within marketing, and I'm more of the consumer behavior side of marketing. So we each handle different papers. What's been really rewarding in the last uh, month or so is we've done an analysis of all the papers over the last five years, and we are coding them very carefully to see what are the new topics that are emerging, what are the methods that we see. One of the things we really like about the Journal of Marketing Research is that it's a multi-method journal. So it's not um, you know, siloed by method, but people who use experimental methods and people who use um, you know, maybe uh, archival data from online sources are publishing in the same journal. Sometimes papers even use multiple methods so that you can really get that cross-fertilization across topic areas. So that's, that's so really nice. give us a sense of what, what are the current controversies in the field? What are, are, are people fighting out different terrain and having different theories of, of what's, uh, what's the best representation of reality? Mm, that's a great question. Uh, one of the um, still to be determined trends is in machine learning and often those are atheoretical. They're based on patterns of data and then there's the more theoretical side of marketing where you have maybe analytical models, you have behavioral experiments that are designed to uncover patterns of behavior. So we have these more theoretical papers and these more empirical papers colliding and one of the things that we're figuring out as a field is how do they mesh and how do they complement one another mm -hmm. because they're coming from very different bases. Give, give us a sense of you know, what's the most interesting thing. What are you excited about right now? What, do you, what are you working on uh, right at this moment? So one of the themes that's drawn my interest lately, a few, few recent papers, is the idea of scarcity. So when we think about marketing, often we're imagining how consumers are spending money, um, imagining them picking products from, from store shelves, but what if those consumers don't have money? What if those consumers don't have products to choose within 
their stores or they can't get to the store. So uh, whether it's product scarcity or resource scarcity, there are some fundamental shifts that happen when those uh, resources and products are unavailable. And we think of those as very negative effects, but in fact, some of our research has shown that these scarce resources or these scarce products can actually have positive effects as well. So we become more efficient when we have scarce resources. We use those resources to their maximum capabilities. We become more creative in using them. So in some cases, we don't want to have unlimited resources because we won't use them as effectively. Mm -hmm. Give us an example of that. Mm -hmm. What what are you thinking of now? So time is something that uh, often we uh, may not use the best, make the best use of our time when we feel like we have unlimited time. But if you, you were uh, constrained in time and you had to write an email in the next 10 minutes, what would have taken you 20 minutes if you had unconstrained time may be knocked off your list in 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. So forcing you to, to think about your top priorities and, and putting them into that email uh, may help. For me, I know that you know if I'm preparing a class for two o'clock. If I have a few hours beforehand, um, but I do research in the morning until noon, and then I spend from 12 to 2 preparing for class, I'm going to be a lot more efficient and effective preparing for those two hours because I know I have a time deadline. So planning your own schedule is something you can do to increase the, the perception of constraints and create that efficiency within your schedule. Let, let me go back to another. You you actually mentioned it. So to, so people are interested in knowing how academics work. And so, do you have a a regimen that you that you aspire to, uh, where you sort of work on research on certain hours of certain days, and then you're doing teaching? How, how do you juggle the various duties of a faculty member? So I try to work within constraints. <laughs> so uh, putting down on my schedule, um, knowing uh, I have due dates for manuscripts that are coming in for the journal that I co-edit, they're due on certain dates. So that's not something I have control over, but I can put them on my calendar for that particular day. And I try to use my best hours of the day for my research. So. Uh, Morning hours tend to be great for me for creative thought and writing, so I'll schedule those in. And then when due dates are coming for my journal articles, I will uh, put those on the calendar. I schedule around teaching. So I try to plan my weeks ahead of time. I also try to plan my semesters around certain uh, priorities that I have. So I'm a list person. (laughs) (laughs) So some of our younger colleagues, I think, have, have trouble figuring out the juggling of different parts of a faculty member's life and how, how do you how do you keep to those schedules that you've laid out and how do you you avoid having the immediate need kind of intrude on the long-term investments mm-hmm. you're making well I do hate to be late so having a deadline is something that I find very motivating so even if Um, It means scheduling a meeting with a colleague to talk about research on Thursday. I know I have to do some tasks to prepare for that. If we schedule the meeting today on, um, uh, then we know that by Thursday we have to accomplish those certain tasks, so it keeps keeps you on schedule. You have someone waiting for you. Uh, Similarly, if you have class, if you have deadlines for a review that you're submitting to a journal, all those things are uh, deadlines that you don't want to be late for. 
right? Mm-hmm. I also find it very motivating that, um, you know, with, with young kids at home, that I have a babysitter who's, who's working, uh, and uh, she works certain hours of the day, so I make it a point to be very productive during those hours so that mm-hmm. I can go home at the end of the day and, and be uh, with my family. It seems like this was a pretty early interest on your part. Uh, there, uh, this is not always true of our, our colleagues of picking an interest early on. When you were in high school and earlier, is this was this a likely course? Were you interested in uh, the role of consumers and 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 consumer oriented business? It didn't occur to me until I was maybe halfway through my undergraduate experience. So in high school, I was planning to be an interior designer. So. <laughs> very different path. It took a lot of art, um, but once I got to college, um, and and um, I, I found that I was very interested in these economics classes, and particularly in how consumers made decisions and how consumers spend their time. So that was exposure that I got from some of the the introductory classes that I took within my college curriculum. Really um, sparked an interest. So listening to your description of your research, it, it sounds like you're using multiple approaches. Do, do you ever mount experiments? And how do you mount experiments in your field? So we have a variety of methods, even within experimental research. Sometimes we run studies online. Uh, there's a tool uh, within Amazon called Amazon MTurk. We also run studies in our lab. So we're fortunate to Uh, have students who learn by participating in experiments, uh, and we have a full-time lab manager who works with all the business school faculty to help faculty design and run their studies. So So give us a sense of, give us an example of an experiment you might might use, and who's the researcher, who's the subject, and what's the stimulus? Sure, so we often use a, a tool called Qualtrics to design our studies, and the great thing about this tool is that we can actually engage people in experiences. Uh, so I'll tell you about one of my studies where we were studying substitution. So we had participants come in, start the study, their task was to choose a song to listen to. Then uh, they went through a few uh, screens about why they chose the particular song, and then we said, oh, sorry, we had a technical difficulty and you're gonna have to choose a different song. The one you chose is not available. So our real research question was what kind of song they'll choose as a substitute. Will they choose one that's very similar to the one they originally chose or will they choose one that's different? And we find that people typically choose similar songs because they're trying to match on attributes. But if they choose something that's different, it really gets their mind off what they originally wanted more effectively. So you're better off as a consumer or as a person choosing a substitute that's dissimilar to what you thought you originally wanted if your goal is to move on and reduce your desire for that unattainable alternative. So how might that play out in real life? Do, do, mm-hmm. you, do you see how that could affect real behavior <laughs> in the grocery so, stores? On absolutely. Like so we also ran an online version of this study where we had people uh, who were trying to diet. And we asked them to use one of two methods. One where if they wanted a particular food, they thought about a substitute and they thought about how similar it was to the, suppose it was ice cream. So uh, maybe they chose frozen yogurt instead of ice cream. uh, And they thought about how similar it was to the option they wanted. Or we had to choose something uh, and and think about how different it was. 
uh, from what they originally wanted. We found that focusing on differences helped them move on and uh, focusing on similarities often led to them consuming both. Uh -huh. Negative <laughs> overconsumption effect of focusing on similarity. So listening to your discussion about what you're interested in, it seems like you're quite deliberately bringing together multiple, multiple domains of knowledge and uh, that are studied for their own benefit in, in different fields. So is that how you see what you're doing and, and how do you keep that going? Are you constantly looking at knowledge outside of, of your major field? That's a good question. I think I'm motivated by questions that I want to answer. So when it comes to consumers, they're thinking about how they spend money and other resources. They're also human. So that's a natural blending of psychology and economics. And um, so I, I think being an applied interdisciplinary field of marketing, that's very natural for us to think about very relevant questions that are being asked by managers, relevant questions that are being asked by consumers, and then try to answer them. And we use the various methods that we have available to us to do so. Rebecca, thank you for joining us today in this podcast. This was absolutely fascinating.